Recently, I did a funeral of a 99, almost 99-year-old woman, a very beloved person, and it was as much a celebration as it was an occasion for grief. Whoops. <laughs> Jewish funerals often start with a line that that night, actually that day, that afternoon, got stuck in my throat. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Gam ki elech lo ki ata imadi. It made me think a lot in the days following the funeral. I thought to myself, when I'm depressed, or I'm despairing, I fear a lot of evil, and I don't feel like anybody's with me. I don't know about you, when things get really rough, but it seems to me what makes them even rougher is that we disconnect, is that we feel that we don't see a possibility for hope or a hand to reach out to. Some of you heard me speak this past Rosh Hashanah about my recent walk in the valley of the shadow of death. I've had a few, but this is my most recent one. <laughs> my 16-year-old daughter was diagnosed with cancer. Thank God she's okay now, I want to tell you that up front. She's back in school and waiting to hear from colleges whether she's been accepted or not. She went through five months of chemotherapy and six weeks of radiation. And in that time, I felt fairly alone. I felt like I had to stand up and be there for her. But I didn't understand, not why God was abandoning me, but why life was abandoning me. I felt like luck had abandoned me. Now, what hadn't abandoned me was my communities, was all of you, my friends, were my family. People were really there. but. I kept thinking it wasn't supposed to be this way. And occasionally my daughter would say to me, why did this happen to me? And I had no idea how to answer it. But I'm here to talk not about that, but an occasion where, despite the fact that she was walking in the valley of the shadow of death, she could touch another person. So one night we were in the hospital. When you receive chemo, often you're immunocompromised. And um, she developed a fever, and we had to rush her to the hospital. And that night, in, on the ninth floor of Sloan Kettering, we heard a baby crying. And that's not unusual. It was a pediatric ward. But the baby was crying and crying and crying. And at some point, a nurse came into our room, and my daughter asked the nurse, why is the baby crying? And the nurse said, well, the baby's alone. 
the baby's parents couldn't be with the baby, with her. And my daughter just wept. And I was so moved that she, even though she was walking in the shadow of the valley of death, was so moved. I was amazed at her empathy. I had kind of shut down and been on automatic. Her heart was intact. She could still feel, upon occasion. And I could also feel, upon occasion. And we made connections with others, which was really comforting to us. And it felt like, even though we walked in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, you were with me, not because you, capital Y, was with me, but some you was with us. And we were the other you that was with them. If you think back to the first century Palestine, there's a very famous Jewish teacher who also felt abandoned, at least on occasion. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lama azavtani. I mean, we could understand this. After all, he was being crucified. If we think of the chapters we read, the wisdom chapters, in these weeks in the book of Exodus, there's a story of disconnection and connection. The people of Israel in the last Parsha, in the last portion, the last wisdom reading from last week, are absolutely terrified because their leader Moses went up to Mount Sinai and did not tell them he was leaving and did not tell them when he would be back. He wasn't a good leader and he wasn't acting like a good parent. I mean, these are the children of Israel. So what do they do? They feel unprotected. They feel scared. They see at the top, top of Mount Sinai that Moses disappears. This is through, we, we really have um, sort of a view into their picture in the Torah, right? Moses disappears into a cloud, and all they see is a consuming fire, the consuming fire of God, Eshukal. If you remember, Moses is so special, because when he comes across um, God's fire, he sees it as a fire that doesn't consume, right? So Moses can withstand the intensity of God, but the people can't. So they're faced with this consuming fire, and they create a golden calf, which is the absolute embodiment of betrayal and disconnection from God. Interestingly enough, they create a calf from gold, afraid of fire, right? Wild, uncontained. They create gold they can hold. It's cold. It's the opposite of the image of God in these chapters. Gold is not wild, not unpredictable, not dangerous. Gold is something that could be owned and manipulated, something that would not consume them, something that would keep them safe. Young, the psychologist, who lived in the 19th and 20th century, 
talked about addiction as a prayer gone awry. When we can't stand to connect with what we really need to connect with, with transcendence, with something that could overwhelm us, then we reach for a shortcut. I think sometimes, talking about shortcuts, when I can't sleep at night and I look across at my night table and I kind of grab my phone, cold, smooth, who's wanting me, who's reaching out for me, who's liking me? We think about the little addictions every day that eclipse the deeper meaning that we might achieve because it, we can control it. We can control it with our devices. It seems like what our society is about is that kind of individualism, right? That kind of control of life. Here we are. Tomorrow we read about the Mishkan, the house that God dwelled in. It was created by a man, in part, called Bitzalel, translated as the one who lived in the shadow of God. The Mishkan, this movable spiritual feast, was all about connection. It was all about God sort of retracting God's self, God doing simsum so that the people could tolerate a relationship with God. But it gets even more radical than that because there's one detail. There's the copper laver, the copper basin that the priests used to wash their hands in. And that copper basin was made out of the mirrors of women. And what ancient commentary and legend tells us is those were the mirrors that the Israelite women used when their husbands were enslaved and beaten down and exploited and dehumanized and could not reproduce. And it was the women who were in charge of making sure there was another generation. So they would take those mirrors and they'd hold them in front of themselves and their husbands and they'd get all dressed up and they would say to their husbands, they would kind of taunt them and say, I'm prettier, prettier than you. I'm better looking than you. And kind of tease their husbands back into life, back into embodiment, back into eros. I saw recently an amazing YouTube video, one that's gone viral. It's a kind of contemporary commentary on this ancient legend. It features an African-American father, a single father, and his little daughter. His name is Ron Alston, and the daughter's name is Aliyah, or Aliyah. Every single morning, he holds the mirror. This is kind of their morning prayer. He holds the mirror in front of them, and the father says to his daughter, Ron says to his daughter, look at yourself. Look in your eyes, he tells her, as the two of them face the mirror. You got to see it, okay? You got to feel it. And then he says to her, say, I am strong. And this three-year-old says, I am strong. And Austin says, say, I am smart. And Aaliyah says, I am smart. Say, I work hard. And she says, I work hard. If you would join me for a minute in helping Ron Austin 
strengthen his daughter and strengthen all of us who are created in the divine image. Repeat after me, just as Aaliyah would. I am beautiful. I am respectful. I'm not better than anyone. Nobody's better than me. I am amazing. I am great. And then he says to her, if you fall, he asks her, I get back up, she replies, without missing a beat. He is doing the opposite, or at least on the other end of time, of what the Israelite women did. Right? They want to bring their husbands back to life. He is preparing her for a future as an African-American woman who's not going to have an easy time in this world, who's going to hear all kinds of ugly voices, and she's going to have that mirror image inside her to counteract them. She's going to have those voices, his voice inside her, her own voice inside her to counteract them. So here's what I came to. What does it mean that when we walk in the shadow of the valley, the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with me? It means that we hold on to the fact that we were created in the divine image that we hold on to it for all we, with all we have. And we hold up that mirror to each other and resurrect one each, each other as if we ourselves were responsible for enlivening the dead. We can learn from our radical female warrior ancestors, the Tzavot, the one the ones who served in front of the sanctuary. We can learn from Ron Alston and his daughter. We can be warriors for the divine image, each one of us. Shabbat shalom.